0: Hi, everybody, I'm Dave Lucarelli. I am the writer of Tinseltown for Alterna Comics and also the writer for the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade from Abacap Studios. And um, I'm here to talk comics. Woohoo!
1: I love talking comics. Okay, so I saw a really cool thing you put up um, about Tinseltown being a tribute. Yeah. You care to elaborate on that? I don't want to. I don't want to say it for you. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah. So, uh, Tinseltown is a story about one of the first female police officers in Hollywood. It's set in 1915. Uh, it's a period crime drama that's been compared to uh, Boardwalk Empire meets La Confidential. Nice. But in real life. Uh, my mother was also a police officer on the Pittsburgh Police Force uh, starting in the 80s for 20-plus years, and so the book is also uh, my tribute to her.
1: That is awesome. That is really awesome, and that's why I wanted to let you explain it. I didn't want to say, hey, you did a cool thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty amazing. So Boardwalk Empire and L.A. Confidential, huh?
0: Yeah. That well, what happened was... I was studying um, some history and I was studying Universal Studios uh, at the early 20th century. It was kind of a proto-feminist organization in the sense that it uh, had a female mayor, female police chief, female police officers, Mm -hmm. and it was fun as a semi-autonomous city unto itself apart from Los Angeles. Um, But they also weren't above exploiting those female police officers, they kind of functioned as a cross between lot security guards and um, actors, you know, to amuse the tourists. So sometimes they would march them in short skirts and parades to appeal to more prurient interests, that sort of thing.
1: Oh, that's just lovely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, was it a League of Their Own? They finally get to play baseball, but you have to look like this while you do it kind of thing? Exactly. We're exactly. are going give and I, you uh, kinda... the, the appearance of, of full respect, but...
0: But there's always a catch, yes.
1: Right. Caveats galore. Yes. So is this going to be a long-running book, or is it going to be a a shorter story, being um, creator-controlled like it is? I mean, creator-owned like it is.
0: Right. So the first story is uh, five issues. Nice. And um, actually, I was just talking to Peter Samedi, who runs Alterna, uh, on his podcast the other night, and he was telling me that... um, if I wanted to keep telling stories about that character in that world, that he was uh, more than open to publishing them. So I do have some ideas for where a Tinseltown 2 or a Tinseltown 3 could go. Um, I haven't fully fleshed them out, um, but we'll see. It could happen. That's awesome. I, I really like Peter. Um, yeah. I've had him on the show before, and,
1: I mean, y- y- you've seen me on Twitter I always reach out to anything Alterna does. Um, I, I, I had, a, you know, a Rodolfo Ramir earlier this week from Lucha Comics mm-hmm. on. And, um, you know, we, we were just talking about, um, I don't know if it's an age thing, like a maturity thing. I mean, I've read comics forever, but I've gravitated more towards uh, indie labels and creator-owned books um, in the past couple of years, and I've really found a whole new love for comics in the style that you guys are putting out. So, you know, I definitely wanted to get behind you and and get you on here so so we could help push the book, which I believe came out this week. Am I correct?
0: Yeah, it was originally supposed to come out the last week of March. I'll, um, Diamond pushed it back a week, so it came out April. Oof, 4th. Diamond.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it is out, so so people can pe- people can get their. Uh, your eyes and hands on it.
0: Absolutely, it's it comp bookstores near you. And if for some reason your comp bookstore didn't order it or they sold out, you can also order it directly now from Alterna as well. Awesome.
1: So you've got this other project that has my uh, my uh, interest peaked. Okay. The, the vampire book. Describe the vampire book.
0: Okay, so the children's vampire hunting brigade is kind of a punk rock Buffy set in Scotland. Uh, a coming-of-age gothic adventure that was inspired by something called the real-life Gorbel's Vampire Incident. And what nice. that is, is in real life, in the 1950s, hundreds of school kids went looking for a vampire in this one Scottish graveyard. And uh, it was considered mass hysteria. They blamed it on comic books of at the time. Of course. Um, although, interestingly enough... Um, just in the past few years, a comic book has emerged that may have been in part a catalyst uh, to, to set off the entire thing. But we can get into that into the weeds of that later. Uh, in our book, they find what they're looking for. They form the brigade. Half century later, there's a couple of juvenile delinquents named Gavin and Doug drinking in that graveyard the night the vampires return. Nice. Yeah. So there's three volumes in the trilogy. Each one is a self-contained story, but they do uh, fulfill an overall story arc as well. And we are live on Kickstarter right now with um, the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade All Souls Day. And you can get just that standalone graphic novel or you can get all three in the series plus a bunch of other goodies. And uh, yeah, it's the same artist as Henry uh, Henry Ponciano, the same artist as Tinseltown. So if you pick up Tinseltown and you like that, uh, chances are you're also going to like the Brigade.
1: That's absolutely amazing. So so were, were these your first uh, forays into doing books, or have you done work for other studios before, or or more you know indie stuff that that's come out that maybe we haven't heard of yet?
0: Um, yeah, so the Brigade was my my first uh, foray. Started about five years ago okay. and I self published the first four issues. And then I hooked up with a company in out of Seattle independent press called, uh, creators edge press. Yeah, And they put out, um, volumes one and two of the graphic novels. And they are now kind of turning into a boutique label. That's just going to be for the guy that runs the press. Um, they're not really putting out books by anybody else anymore, but, um, we're still friends and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. uh, I'll be putting out the third volume uh, under my own label, which is Abacab Studios. Okay, I have to ask, the
1: Abacab, is, does that have any relation to turning on a blood code in a certain video game? I,
0: I, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Actually, I, I, I took Abacab from the, the Genesis song, and the title is actually based on a song structure, right? Um, a, B, A, C, A, B... Like, um, verse, chorus, verse, chorus.
1: Okay, hold on a second. Let me tell you why that blows my mind. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so you do comics, therefore in the realm of nerddom, right? Yes. Video game stuff definitely falls under that umbrella. It does. I literally got goosebumps. I don't care how corny that sounds to anybody else. I literally got goosebumps when you mentioned the inspiration. Here's why. My thought of your reference, also came from a Genesis. The ah. Sega Genesis. Ah. To turn the blood on on Mortal Kombat, when it first came out on consoles, and the whole world was in an uproar about how violent it was, the code to turn the blood on is ABB,
0: Abacab. Ah. Interesting. I right. did
1: not know that. <laughs> so Genesis made a song called Abacab. <laughs> Yes. And the Sega Genesis has one of the most famous unlock codes, which is also Abacab. That's the only reason why I asked such a weird question about the name. <laughs> it was because I was like, that has to be a Mortal Kombat reference. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, it's actually not, but I bet you that Sega Genesis uh, got the Abacab thing from the same source that I did. That's interesting. I... Would- I, um, I- because my background, uh, before I started doing comics, I had a lot of experience playing in bands and writing songs as a musician. Really? So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's
1: a whole new avenue we can go down. Sure. I mean, well, I, just, I grew up in punk and hardcore bands in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, I mean, I live in Atlanta now, but, you know. What did you play? Uh, my voice, much oh, to the chagrin, I'm sure, of
0: my many audiences. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna say. So, um, so you did the punk and hardcore thing. I, I did kind of more the the metal or you know slightly alternative kind of thing. I was, um, if you took bands like Kiss, Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses, yeah, added a, a little bit of gothic influence in that blender, uh, you would gotten my my main band, uh, Dame Fortune.
1: Nice okay so so like hmm see my, my closest thing to metal mixed with gothic would be typo negative okay sure but I'm, I guarantee you that, that that's not on the mark is it for whatever what you were
0: talking about not exactly I not mean exactly. you know I used to have a lot of people come up and tell me I looked like one of the guys from typo negative so um. <laughs> nice but. Yeah, um, I wish I looked like Peter yeah, we, Steele,
1: but you know, right. not now, but back then. No, back then, definitely. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, so we were around for about ten years, and I mean, we're still around, um, some of us, at least. Uh, but but we put out three albums, and we put out a DVD, and uh, oh. you know, we we kind of took it to the point where we could take it. We got some uh, positive press in Japan and Germany, and We got to the point where we could headline clubs uh, in Hollywood or, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, make a couple hundred bucks. But uh, we couldn't really take it much further than that. You know, it was unfortunately we're doing it right as the music industry was collapsing. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But um, anyhow, we're actually going to be doing a reunion. um, Well, some of the surviving members actually Our our drummer was unfortunately Mm. was killed in a a car crash. Um, I'm sorry, dude. That sucks. Yeah, it was, it was a horrible thing. He was a really good guy. And it was uh, one of those situations where literally I talked to him the night before and he, he was supposed to come over the next day, and then I just never saw him again. And, you know, it's still one of those things that's hard to, to mentally process because, um, you know, it's one thing when somebody has a disease and they're dying over a period of time, but when you just go from talking to them one day to... Hearing that they're dead, you don't, you can't really. It's hard to make that leap if you know what I mean. I
1: was just having that conversation with somebody the other day about that. Like, you know, when when you get to say goodbye, and it's almost a peace and a release for them, it's completely different. Yeah, than just getting a phone call and having to process like, what the hell just happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: It's like somebody walked out of the room, and then you never saw them again, and they simply cease to exist. And there's a part of you that just can't quite mentally get around that.
1: Right, exactly. But so,
0: so you guys are going to do a reunion show? Are you doing it in L.A. or? Well, right now I don't. Yeah, we want to do a reunion show. Um, our bass player's got some health problems too right now. But what we're going to do at the very least is we're going to do a new track that's going to tie in with the Kickstarter uh, for the Brigade. And it's going to be a song about the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade. Oh, for real? Yeah. That's metal. Yes. <laughs> and <we're>,
1: That's freaking <laughs>
0: awesome. And we're going to use uh, Kevin Valentine on drums, which I don't know if you know who he is, but he he's a guy that is a great rock drummer. He's played with everybody from, uh, he's been Kiss's ghost drummer, on mm-hmm. Psycho Circus and other albums, to playing with Cinderella, to playing with Trent Reznor uh, early on, and um, so he's gonna that's he's gonna that's up, familiar. play the drums. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a huge, uh, huge Nine Inch Nails fan. So okay, yeah, this would have been pre Nine Inch Nails. I think like the band before that, but oh
1: god, what was the name of that? Uh oh. We're opening up. Yeah, we're opening up doors. <laughs> it's supposed to be about the comics, idiot. Veer left, veer left. And that's me because I, I am like um, herding cats when it comes to stuff that I'm into. Like, that. I mean, I've had music guests on and comic guests on. And, I mean, I've just always, you know, comics and, and music have always been two of the main staples. You know, I mean, of course, you know, video games and whatnot. But comics and music, um, mm have an ability, I I think, to speak to creative people. Um,
0: Sure.
1: You know, because, I mean, music can hit you on so many different levels. Music brings memories back when you listen to something old. You know, music gets you excited for something when it's new. Um, You you know, being a creator of music as well as me, um, sometimes the only fulfillment you get in your life, depending on what your circumstances are, are whatever music you can create. And, sure. you know, uh, comics have been that way with me, too. I mean, it's such a visual, mental medium. Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes you need to run and hide from the world for a little bit. And uh, comics and music have always been that, that easy solace that, uh, you know, won't kill you if you take in too much of it.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of overlap there, too. I think a lot of uh, musicians are into comics and a lot of uh, comic book people are heavily into the music, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm writing uh, a book
1: right now um, that I'm not ready to talk about to anybody. Um, It's my first foray into seriously writing a book.
0: Okay. And
1: um, it's it's almost required that I put headphones in um, and pick something. I can't write when it's silent. And Uh I can't write to the TV because it's too distracting. But if I put headphones in and pick an album or make a playlist, I can just sit there and just lose it in whatever I'm whatever I'm doing so I'm kind of learning that I can't I I almost can't write without music and maybe that comes from being a musician Mm -hmm. I mean I don't Mm -hmm. know but I can't write if it's quiet and I can't write with a TV or a movie on but with music I can find this zone where like everything else melts away and my fingers can just go you know
0: yeah 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 I could totally see that I don't you know that's something that's interesting I haven't really tried writing with music on in the background but uh, maybe I will I mean, it's mostly because what what I'm
1: writing, I had to go to some some really dark places. Um, I thought, you know, this will be a cool idea, and if I can get it out, it'll make a really cool graphic novel, if not just a book, and okay. this and that, and this and that. And when I started writing it, and I realized the depths to which I was going to have to go to make some of these plot points happen, and to really flesh okay. out one of the characters I created, I kind of stepped back and was like holy shit, that's really dark. <laughs> like, so it was almost like, um, put on some music to help get me in that mood where I can write something that, uh, if you spoke aloud, would horrify somebody if they thought you were serious for a moment.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> you do have to find a little bit of yourself even in, in the darkest characters that you write, for sure, and that can be a little, uh, a little disturbing.
1: Most definitely. So, so... Um, did you write b- b- before music um, you know anything else like books or short stories or was it or, or did you find your first creative outlet in music and then went to comics
0: yeah I mean I've always written um, short stories here and, and there I've had um, a couple different ones published over the years Awesome. Um, but what happened was you know when I was in my 20s and 30s uh, the idea of going on the road with my band and, and and taking off for a long period of time seemed like a great uh, great thing to do um, but then I, I got married and I had a son and suddenly that became very much the opposite of what I wanted to do and I was a lifelong fan of comics and I sort of felt like you know I had made four or five albums um, in my life and I thought well you know I still have songs that i want to write music that i want to do but i kind of i've kind of expressed myself in that arena to the point where i'm satisfied with it and i wanted to to make some comics i didn't want to to leave this earth without having done that
1: that's awesome <laughs> i like that i like that thank God yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so when did the first um vampire volume come out because i i think this is what you said this is the third of, this of is the third, so yeah. Okay.
0: So what we did is, you know, I put out uh, the first four issues. I ran a Kickstarter for that, hooked up with uh, Creators Edge Press. We put out volume one. Then I put out volume two. And after volume two, we started working on what eventually would become Town, And um, something very interesting happened. I got invited to be a guest guest at Glasgow Comic-Con, so I got to go to Scotland, and that was a a really amazing experience. Um, For one thing, it was my first sold-out con, um, and I gave a lecture on the Gorbals Vampire Incident, I got my own private tour of the cemetery where the incident took place, Um, I met lots of wonderful, interesting Scottish people, one of which ended up in Volume 3 as a character. Nice. I got to tour all around Scotland, um, and you know, see ruins and castles, and walk underground tunnels, and do all kinds of research uh, for what would become Volume Three. Um, actually, while I was there, there was an exhibit at one of uh, one of the local places about the Southern Necropolis, uh, about the Southern Necropolis Museum, and they used some of the pages from my comic book in the in the exhibit for the museum and so i got to see that firsthand too so it was really a tremendous experience and i think it it help, helps make volume three definitely the most authentic volume uh by far but also the best
1: that's awesome dude so so what was this incident i mean i know you, i know you touched on it br- briefly earlier but um, yeah it sounds super interesting so what was this, this incident where these kids actually thought there was a real vampire that they were hunting for?
0: Okay, so to go into detail on that, um, they went into this, the Southern Necropolis Cemetery. They had steak knives, sticks, uh, torches, and they told everybody they were looking for a seven-foot-tall vampire with iron teeth that they thought had killed a couple of local boys. And the constable, uh, police constable tried to disband them. They wouldn't listen. They came back the next night. Um, over several nights, finally they got like one of the local school um, principals or whatever, and he came and he finally got them to disperse. Um, there's a number of different reasons and explanations for why it happened, um, one of which is that the steelworks were at the time adjacent to the cemetery, and they would belch forth all kinds of smoke and red fire that would light up the sky all through the night. So it really gave the cemetery a very spooky, scary look. Um, Like I said, in recent years, there has been a comic book that surfaced from that time period called The Vampire with Iron Teeth. And the current modern thinking is that perhaps a child or children saw that comic book and conflated it with the urban legend of the Iron Man of the Gorbals, who was kind of a boogeyman that the parents would use and and would tell their kids, don't go to the Gorbals after school, you know, uh, because the the Iron Man of the Gorbals will get you. And when, in actual fact, they didn't want them going there because um, it was kind of a known hangout for transients and low-level criminals and that kind of thing. Right. so so that was that was the, the start of it. What's interesting is that there was actually a trial, not a trial, a hearing in Parliament that ended up uh, banning the importation into the UK of American horror comics. And they cited this incident as one of the reasons. Um, it made for some very interesting arguments because they had to talk about how there are good imaginary monsters like, the Loch Ness monster—that's good for tourist trade—and right. then there were bad imaginary monsters like the Gorebyss vampire. Um, in recent years, there's been a whole resurgence. Actually, since I started doing the comic, there's been a couple of plays that have been put on. Uh, there's been a mural that was put up in Glasgow recently of the vampire. So, in a in a strange sort of way, uh, you know, the the incident was kind of life imitating art. And my book is art imitating life, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like um, for us, you know, being able to read it here, it's almost like you're Americanizing a real legitimate um, urban legend uh, for for Scotland. That sounds extremely fascinating, and I'm going to look up tonight.
0: Um, Yeah, well, what I found in my research, too, that neighborhood, the Gorbals, it was a working-class neighborhood, It actually had a multi-generational predilection towards monster hunting, right? Because the sociologists that were studying... Oh, yeah. The sociologists that were studying the incident put out a call for the vampire hunters, and they heard from a few of them, but they also heard from other monster hunters from different eras that had hunted ghosts or banshees or the White Lady or Spring-Heeled Jack. Um, Holy cow. I I think... Part of it is it was a working class neighborhood. Um, the cemetery was a place that the kids would go after school, where they had they were free to roam completely unsupervised. Their parents were at work anyhow, right. and they could, you know, exercise their imagination, face their fears, almost like today the internet is now with things like the Slender Man.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Kids are inventing their own boogeymen here. Only most of them are digital and not. Yeah. Gotcha. We, uh, up in Massachusetts, um, mm-hmm. we, uh, uh, we had a penchant for, and uh, first of all, if there's any law enforcement who listens to the show, A, I support you 100%. B, statute of limitations. I'm almost 40. I was barely a teenager. Uh, <laughs> we would find these, you know, because Massachusetts, I mean, it's not as, it's nowhere near as old as parts of Europe, I'm sure, that, that, that you toured on this. But, you know, we've got our old buildings and we've got our old facilities that have been shut down forever. And, you know, we had a lot of mental hospitals up in Massachusetts that during the 80s, when the Mm -hmm. government pulled most of the funding from mental health in the country, a lot of them shut down. Yeah. Um, So, you know, me and my friends, we had a penchant for finding our way into those uh, during the day and at night. Sure. And we would scare the ever loving bejesus out of ourselves quite a lot doing stuff like that so oh yeah you can invent all kinds of monsters if you you put yourself somewhere where your imagination is uh helped along by aesthetics and environment and you know building off of other urban legends and oh well i heard from this person that this person's here um i had a friend in elementary school who was convinced um that one of the high school janitors was a zombie who ate students (laughs) who i'm not kidding who ate students on the banks of the Totten River that ran behind Totten High School.
0: Okay. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah, I um well, so I could tell you a couple more. Um actually at the Southern Necropolis Cemetery, there's a statue um called the the statue of the White Lady and it's almost it's almost like the equivalent in the US to Bloody Mary. Where they say if you walk around the statue three times and say white lady, say white lady, name. white yeah. lady, she will come alive and kill you. So, of course, we had to do that while well, we got the tour of the Southern Necropolis. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, we did a story based on that. Because also in Scottish folklore, there is um, there are white ladies that are kind of a vampiric. Uh, breed of Scottish vampire, and so I just there's a short a four page short story comic story that um, Henry and I did that's you can find in Monsters and other other scary shit want to be press called the Legend of the White Lady that that touches on that.
1: The Legend of the White Lady.
0: See, I yeah. mean, I I, I mean, um, I, could, I
1: could go all night for, with stuff like that. I I mean, we used to. There was a house. Um behind a Shaw's supermarket, and that is a completely regional supermarket. Nobody outside of New England is going to know what a Shaw's is, I don't think. Okay, um, but there was this old colonial house back there and it it the the, the how do I put it? The first two-thirds of it were modern looking. Yeah. Once you got away from the street where you couldn't see it anymore, there was another third of the house that looked extremely older than the first two-thirds of the house. Okay, so we couldn't get into the first two-thirds of the house. We had to go in through the, what what I'll call the, the, the old section. Um, okay. It, it was a very simple door. It didn't even have a lock on it. And, I mean, we, we kicked it in, and it was this really, really claustrophobic, you could tell it was a living room. It had these crudely built-in shelves and built-in bookcases on the wall and a tiny fireplace, like a tiny fireplace. Uh-huh. And... Um, There was a there was a hallway that went to a very simple kitchen off of that, Uh and then it was walled off from the rest of the house until we went up the stairs that was on the other side of the living room, and halfway up the stairs where a normal landing would be on a two level house, you know, where you go up the stairs and then you can stop and turn and go up the rest of the stairs. Um, Uh In the landing, there was a uh, a square hole cut into the wall. Um, I forget which one of us rock, paper, scissored and lost and had to go through that first, but you literally (laughs) crawled through it and the, the floor was even with the hole. So you were standing. And when you crawled through the hole, you were actually higher than you were before you crawled into the hole. If that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Then there was this little stairway that went down and it opened up into a regular sized kitchen. Uh, we realized we were in the first two-thirds of the house.
0: Uh
1: Um, Exploring that, every room, including the rooms downstairs, every room had um, a panel along the wall that would open and you could actually go inside the wall and go to the next room. Um, You could literally travel the entire inside of the house um, without ever going out into the rooms. You'd literally find the little panel and you'd pop it open and you'd be like oh okay I'm in this room and then you could go upstairs and it was the same thing Um, super interesting the house was super creepy Uh, I think my friend Dennis uh, tried to go in the basement and he said I swear to god I heard something that sounded like a sword dragging on the ground I'm getting out of here Uh, he (laughs) ran freaked everybody else out we ran um, because we went in at night and uh, me being the uber nerd of the group um, went to the the Taunton Public Library and did some research, yeah, um, and found out that that house is credited with being an underground railroad house. Ah. So, when it was occupied, um, you know, all they would have to do is push a piece of furniture because the doors on the outside were painted and, and looked to to match the um, the inside of the room.
0: Okay. You know, it
1: wa- it wasn't obvious that it was. You know, in fact, I think one of them, one of the doors of the upstairs bedrooms, was actually like back into the left of one of the closets. So okay. all you would have to do is hang up clothes and you would never know. But in the main rooms, it was always on a wall where you could definitely tell that's where you would put furniture or a painting or or a table or something. And um, we never went back and looked, But apparently the house across the street um, was supposedly connected to it. Uh Actually, underground, Um, I didn't have the guts to go in that pitch-black cellar um, by myself, and nobody else wanted to go in the house because Dennis freaked everybody out so bad. Sure. But, you know, I mean, we did lots of stuff like that. Um, I mean, I don't know if you you ever did that as a kid, but we did all kinds of, I get, what do they call it now, urban exploring?
0: Yes, I did Um, a bit of that. Um, Yeah. working into, you know, like, well, let's just say rooftop exploring and on firescapes and breaking into um, buildings that were under construction yep. and uh, drinking in graveyards some of which finds its way into back to coming back to the brigade um, yeah, some of that is based on personal experience okay I got one for you <laughs> uh, in Pennsylvania where I'm originally from Pittsburgh oh, okay there's an urban legend about a guy called the Green Man. And uh, supposedly he was a steel worker who was electrified, and his face slid off, and he turned green. And uh, so you go out. There's actually, uh, ties into another urban legend. There is a tunnel that's a sharp curve where you can't see around the curve of the tunnel. It's called Cadillac Tunnel. And the tunnel itself is only one car length wide, or car width wide. And so... The idea is that you're supposed to stop on either side of the tunnel and honk and then proceed. And supposedly, back in the 50s, uh, it was prom night and there were two Cadillacs that went speeding through opposite ends of the tunnel and had a head-on collision and everybody died. Anyhow, you have to get through Cadillac Tunnel to get to where the Green Man's supposed to be, out in these woods. And so we went looking for him, of course, and there is this area where there's a cave, it's like a man-made cave, and from a distance, it looks very much like it's green. Um, And the reason why is because it's like a concrete, um, small entrance, and there's a hole in the the ceiling of the man-made cave that lets the moonlight in, and Uh the cave itself has huge piles of rock salt. And when the moonlight reflects off the rock salt, it looks green now. So we went up there and this is one of those places where teenagers go to drink and party or whatever. Um, we went up there and the other thing that we noticed was that there were, uh, a couple of cages that were in this small little cave and the Mm -hmm. cages were big enough to, uh, they were like human sized cages, which we (laughs) thought was very odd, you know? that's not okay yeah <laughs>
1: okay so um i've got another one and okay. i'm done dude i know w- we are gonna push the comics i swear but well, i've we'll never be- had a guest on where we got into urban legends um nope. so this is Go super cool yeah okay so uh there were two um schools uh, i guess you'd call it um I mean, they, they were really institutions uh, okay. that for um, children with mental disabilities. So, you know, uh, Down syndrome, um, you know, actual mental retardation and all that. You know, when, when parents uh, and stuff where th- th- there wasn't a lot of, you know, awareness. Yeah. And, you know, it was just easier to put, uh, you know, a relative away somewhere where nobody else could see them. So you wouldn't be embarrassed. And then also you didn't have to worry about their care. Yeah. Um, There were a couple. Um, one of them that that we went into, I, I don't know the name of. I just know it was in a place in Taunton called the Poor Farms, okay, which was this giant series of interlocking hills that apparently at one time was owned by the Poor family, hence being called the Poor Farms. Ah. Um, you know what? I remember going as a kid with my parents and buying like right off the stock, fresh ears of corn. Uh, you know, in the fall and summer yeah, and, you know, um, but it was, it was off this small plot of land the, the poor farms, part of it had been turned into, um, baseball fields for kids. Uh, part of it was an actual city park with swings and, and slides and merry-go-round and, you know, all that stuff, but they were still on the hills. They couldn't really build anything recreational. Um, uh-huh. so, you know, I mean, we'd go out there in a good, you know, you being from Pennsylvania, you get a good nor'easter that drops, you know, quite a bit of snow and, you know, the poor farms are the biggest hills in town. Of course, that's where everybody went to sled and snowboard and, you know, everything else. But there was a building at the base of one of the hills, um, that at one point was a school, uh, for mentally challenged, um, you know, kids. Yeah. And we decided one night that breaking in there was a super cool idea. Um, because the poor farms, those same hills, when it was nice outside, um, were pretty isolated and kind of like your cemeteries, which we also did. But never play yeah. Ouija board in a cemetery when you're underage and your mind is stupid. Um, <laughs> we learned that lesson. Um, I had a friend ride home the whole time asking if he was possessed by demons because we didn't wipe the board right before we left. And wow. um, But anyway, we, we decided to go into that house uh, in the building, and we, the only way to get in because everything was boarded up was on the back of the building there were two of the you know the old style cellar windows okay um we were able to work plywood off of one of them and break the glass and you know and clean it out and everything else and there's nobody out there so it's not like we were pressed for time and had to be quiet Um, we just were able to figure out a way into the house so as we dropped down and went inside uh when it was my turn to drop inside Uh, My friend Scott and Dennis, who really we should have stopped bringing to these things. I'm not kidding. Um, (laughs) They were talking and pointing on what we were dropping down on. Um, Because we weren't dropping down on the floor. We were dropping down onto a chair and then dropping down onto the floor from there. And I I kid you not, dude, we turned around and looked when all of us were in there. And we had dropped down on a small metal chair that was handcuffed to a furnace pipe in the cellar of this building. Ugh. Right. Like, so that already set the tone. Um, you know, I mean, we went through and just the, the morbid attempts at making the place look cheery when it was open, you know, yeah. the, 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 paint schemes and and the, and the decorations that were still up and stuff like that. But looking at like the beds and whatever furniture, the state didn't throw away, you know, when they just abandoned this building, when the funding ran out, um, that building was a trip
0: like oh, uh, that.
1: to go through. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was it, on the outside. It looked like a school. And if you looked up any documentation on it, you could see pictures of these happy kids on the front porch and kids playing in the yard. But when you went inside, it looked like every other God awful mental hospital you, you've ever seen in a movie or gone through yourself. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and th- there was a second one um, that you can look up tonight and look up stuff where a, uh, it was okay. the, Paul, the Paul Dever School. Uh-huh. Um, same thing. It was on Lake Sebastian in Taunton, Massachusetts. In fact, we got in trouble for stealing their paddle boats one night ah. and taking them to the other side of the lake and leaving them there. Because um, that place was actually still open when I was younger. Okay. But, I mean, they closed it while I was in high school. Um, these kids found these tunnels underneath. And I think you can still go on YouTube. And there's, like, slews just a slew of videos from different years of kids working up the nerve to go through these tunnels um, uh, underneath the school that lead to God knows where. Yeah. Um, I mean, like it's, it's literally a building campus. It was a well-known public school yeah. for, for mentally challenged kids. It wasn't like that's where you go to hide them away. You actually bragged, you know, Hey, you know, my kid was born with this, but we got him into the Paul Dever school. I see. You know, so everyone was like, Oh, that's awesome. Da da, da He's going to Paul Dever. That's great. Well, there was way more going on there, I think, than at the other place, because Mm. there are all these tunnels underneath this building. And we went through the building when it closed, and there was really nothing out of the ordinary, but they hadn't yet discovered We never did. We hadn't discovered the tunnels underneath, but I've always wanted to go back and go through through them. Even at 37 years old, being a dad of two and a responsible adult, there's part of me that's like, I need to go back and get through them tunnels.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. You know, this whole idea, um, when we went to Edinburgh, um, there's a tour called the underground city of the dead. And, um, there are underground tunnels there that were originally used to, um, hold whiskey and they weren't really good for that. So they ended up, um, becoming sort of the slums for the poorest of the poor, uh, where you would basically pay a shekel or whatever to go into these tunnels and, um, you know, spend the night every night and that kind of thing. If you didn't have proper housing and there were horrible disease and crime and dysentery and, the other thing that was horrible is, you know, at a certain point, they were trying to kick all of these almost homeless, poor people out and they set this fire there. Um, oh, God. and the tunnels, the way they were designed, there wasn't really an escape route and, uh, not all of the people had left. And so they just basically got cooked alive, like Ugh. it was an oven, um, And so it's it's considered one of the most um, haunted or high paranormal activity places in the world. And you can definitely it's it's a creepy feeling down there. That's you know, I'll I'll say that.
1: Oh, yeah, most definitely. (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I swear uh, one of the most one of the most easy ways to give yourself the heebie jeebies is to go to any church sanctuary when there's nobody there in the dark and just sit there.
0: Oh, sure.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Like just sit there <laughs> in an empty sanctuary with all the lights off, which, you know, is, you know, I'm sure sacrilegious to some to say. But like, ugh, yeah, I, I, there's some old churches in Massachusetts you go in and you're like, yeah, no, no, I, I'm going to go to the house that you say is haunted because that's way less creepy.
0: Right. Than well, being got... in here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in Massachusetts, you had a whole history of some... I mean, weren't there some witch trials in Massachusetts, too? There were a couple. Yeah. I mean, they've been
1: mistold over the years, but, you know, we had one or two. Okay. It wasn't that bad. Everybody was fine after. Yeah. (laughs) They all made up and had a picnic. Um, Yeah, everything was good. No, I, I mean, I actually... You know, being being kids, we'd actually go to Salem for Halloween night, of course, you know, um, once we could start driving and once, you know, we we could go wherever we wanted. Sure. And um, it was funny to watch the fake tours rook people on Halloween night. Um, Um, You know, it was always I always laughed when you'd hear that. And the tour ends at the burning rock. And you just laugh to yourself. What was the burning rock? that's where they tell tourists all the witches were burned ah at the end of the trial and you know you're like yeah but they weren't burned they were all ah. hung except for the one warlock that was convicted he was crushed to death in the road with rocks <laughs> you know,
0: like, so that's where yeah, Arthur I mean, they, got that idea for the crucible interesting
1: yeah but 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 they would sell it that way and the tour ends in the meadow where the burning rock is, and you're like, that is ridiculous, but good on you for making money.
0: Sure, you know, when in doubt, print the legend.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. But no, I mean, um, I mean, I, I guess I've always been kind of fascinated with that stuff. Maybe growing up in New England. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you, I mean, Pennsylvania is the same way. I mean, it's it's one of the you know one of the earliest places we started showing up. And there's just legends behind everything that looks old. There,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there, Another one, a I'll tell you real quick, that um, my family used to vacation in North Carolina, right? Um, okay. Where Nags Head, there's all kinds of interesting urban legends about pirates, and there's Kill Devil Hill. and um, yep. uh, So one of the interesting ones is called The Flaming Ship of Ocracoke. And the story goes that there was a former pirate who found out that a bunch of um, the passengers on this one ship that he was going to be piloting um, were very rich, well-to-do people that were being forced out of their homeland. They were coming to America, and they had to take all of their gold and jewelry and possessions with them on board the boat, and so he hired his own crew of also former pirates and he hatched this plan that what they were going to do was uh cut all their throats in the middle of the night steal all their riches uh, jump on the lifeboats then set the ship on fire and tell everybody that you know it was an accident that's what happened and they'd get away with it right um, and so it's, yeah, the, the story's called the Flaming Ship of Ocracoke. But what's interesting is if you go to uh, North Carolina and you look out uh, on on the nights that there's a full moon, you can see the Flaming Ship of Ocracoke. Which, by the way, nice. the, I I blew the story. But the the story is the the ship catches fire and the wind shifts, and so all the pirates are all burned to death. Anyhow, um, but. If you look out there, you can see on the horizon the flaming ship of Ocracoke each night heading back to Ocracoke Island. The reason why you can see it is because there is a certain type of phosphorescent red plankton uh, nice. that uh, gets the tide takes it over to Ocracoke Island, and you know by the moonlight it kind of looks like the flaming ship of Ocracoke.
1: That's freaking awesome.
0: <laughs> I mean, I
1: live in I live in. The Suburbs of Atlanta now, so that actually is something I could probably jump up and go see for myself, without, yeah, without too much effort. That's pretty awesome
0: for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, um, see, this is why I don't pre write questions.
0: Uh huh. <laughs> I mean,
1: some of the show sounds like a rambly mess, and that's my fault, but this is why. Like, I came on to talk about comics, I am having an absolute blast talking about this stuff. Um, you know, sure. I, I don't I don't have many yeah. people that I get to talk about this stuff with. And I've got, we're, we're not going to get into it tonight, but I have so many stories. I mean, this was a nightly thing for us. Um, okay. Was finding places to go uh, in high school. I mean, you know, other kids were finding spots in the woods to go, you know, get drunk and get high and maybe practice a little fornication. Um, you know, yes. we, we, we would take our girlfriends and sober and straight-minded go find like the craziest places um to go walk around in um i'll end it on on, uh, i'll end my story on this um okay it's about how me and my friends discovered a world war ii internment camp okay um so in massachusetts you know everybody knows the legend of miles standish um, Fort Miles Standish was actually in the city that I grew up in in Taunton, Massachusetts, or in the outlying area of Rainham, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, they turned it into an, they slowly turned it into an industrial park over my childhood. Um, the highway ran through it through, uh, through, through the property. I think after World War II, they shut down Fort Miles Standish and it became something where people could buy private property, build buildings. Um, There's a huge convention center and holiday in there. And now it's like most industrial parks where you go. It's offices and businesses and a hotel for visiting executives and events to be catered in the middle of all of it. Well, while they were building one of the buildings, um, we actually were looking for a a party spot out there. Because on the property, there's an actual lake. um, And we were walking on the edge of the lake and we came upon a barbed wire fence in the middle of nowhere it had nothing to do with any of the construction, but we knew okay. that it was, you know, it had been Fort Miles Standish since the colonial days. Sure. So, you know, you always hear, we always heard stories. And if you went to the library, they had these display cases of stuff that people found out there. Uh, people would find like actual golden buttons off of coats, um, you know, flags uh, with some of the fabric left that they could identify that had been buried over the years, you know, muskets and other rifles through the years. So people would find this stuff. So, you know, we were all like, well, cool. I mean, we're finding a party spot in the woods. We might as well go follow this and see where it takes us. Sure. And we ended up calling it the domes because we came upon, um, to be crass, it looked like two boobs uh, sticking out of the ground. Um, okay. It did. It just looked like boobs. Um, yeah. Metal boobs coming out of the ground. And... Um, None of us dared to go down the ladders inside too far, Um, but you could hear, you know, we dropped stuff, and you could hear that that there was water in there. Um, Uh Uh-huh. So we were like, well, that's pretty cool. It must have, you know, I mean, like, and just thinking, like, dumb kids, like, I was probably for the base, whatever, da-da-da-da-da. Well. Those weren't silos? (laughs) Yeah, no, no, yeah. Now, um, I think most of those are in the Midwest where Farmer John's going to be bailing A one day and be like, what the hell, as a rocket comes out of the barn. Right. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, we just thought, well, it was obviously the water for the base. You know, it was open to World War II, so they had modern plumbing or whatever there. Yeah. Um, but there was this barbed wire fence that, that surrounded that and then narrowed into a path that went back up into the woods. So we followed that and we came up on these derelict buildings That looked like barracks, you know, and most military bases. I was actually in the army um, right right out of high school and, you know, it looked like a primitive barracks building, Um, Hmm. you know, no furniture in it, but it was a very basic square building. There was more than one. So obviously it was housing the same number of people per building, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, So, but something was off because the barbed wire was a little too high. Um, It actually turned into, it went from a wooden fence with barbed wire uh, along it to these buildings with what looked like a guard tower in the back and and, and an almost prison-style fence around it. Um, You know, old and rusted, but, uh, you know, a high fence that actually had the the barbed wire going in, not out. Gotcha. So... You know, um, same thing. Uh, Me and my friend Scott Gonzales, we went to the Taunton Public Library and researched it. And lo and behold, that was actually a water treatment plant for the base, but there was an internment camp there where people were forced to maintain it for a little while. Wow. Um, That was their assigned job uh, when Fort Miles Standish was opened during uh, World War II. And we were just looking for a place to drink a few beers and drop a couch on the yeah. side of the lake and build a fire pit. We ended up finding that instead. Um, you know, I mean, we never reported it. I told my dad about it. And he was like, well, that's pretty cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> dad, you found it. Uh, so, you know, I mean, not a haunted story, but, you know, there's really cool stuff buried everywhere. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're willing to get off a beaten path here or there, you can find some really either creepy or really historically cool stuff.
0: Yes. History is... Uh... A lot stranger than the whitewashed versions that you might learn in school would lead you to believe.
1: Exactly. But as we come up on an hour, I promise. Let's get back to the comics. Um, okay. You have carte blanche to plug any project you want and tell people where they can find you.
0: Okay, sure. Well, so so Tinseltown Number One from Alterna Comics uh, is out in comic book stores now. If your comic book store doesn't have it, you can order it from Alterna. Um and it's a buck fifty. It's part of the newsprint line. So really, what do you have to lose? You can't go too far wrong. Um, it's actually it's gotten tremendous reviews. Like I've I've been blown away by, um, the you know the positive reviews and feedback that I've been getting from people. We've actually we've actually gotten letters from people about it already. So we're gonna put a letters column in. in future issues as well. So, oh, that's um, awesome. yeah, it's it's going really well. Um, it's my first nationally released comic. So, you know, I'm excited about it. And, yeah, man. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it, we just did WonderCon. And that was, I've been doing cons for five years. That was by far my most successful uh, con yet. So, um, And we did a panel, Alterna Comics, with uh, Jordan Hart and Terry Mayo, Michael Kogi, a bunch of other Alterna writers, Mm -hmm. and uh, very very well received. Um, As far as the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, All Souls Day is concerned, uh, we are live on Kickstarter until April 30th. I think we're about 82% funded, and we've got about 23 days left, so I don't want to ever get cocky about it you know i i think that we're going to get funded um we got some really cool things like you can get um your own personalized digital uh drawing by artist henry ponciano so he can draw you as a vampire or vampire hunter um like i said we're going to be recording some original music that goes along with uh all souls day and um there's going to be a slip case that you can get that you can hold all three volumes in that kind of thing. Um, One thing I haven't mentioned, I haven't talked about yet, is this is kind of a a local project, at least right now, to Los Angeles, but I wrote and produced a play that's going to be put on this June um, called Dr. Zamba's Ghost Show of Terror. That's awesome! Thank you. (laughs) And um, so what that is, is for those of you who don't know, Uh, In the 1950s, before they would put on haunted houses for Halloween and stuff, they would four-wall theater and put on kind of a spooky, funny, scary magic show with monsters and hypnotism and mesmerism. And the climax of the show would be the audience was called a blackout sequence, where the audience is enveloped in total darkness and surrounded by supposed supernatural phenomena. And they had all kinds of tricks to make that happen. It's kind of a lost art, but we went back and found the original ghost show manuals from the 50s. And we're bringing it back for five spine-tingling shows at the Flight Theater in the Complex Hollywood. It's going to be every Saturday night in June, late-night shows as part of the Hollywood Fringe Festival. And then I think there's going to be one uh, Pay What You Can Monday night show as well.
1: That's flipping cool. I hope that catches Uh, on and you can bring it to Atlanta, for real. That is awesome. I I, I love that idea.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. For those of you who are curious about the whole ghost show phenomena, the way that I found out about it is there's a great book out there called Ghost Masters um, that really goes into detail about the history of these things and how they were done. Um, Unfortunately, it's out of print right now, so... You know, you have to pay an arm and a leg for it if you can find it on Amazon. But right. if you got the dough, it's well worth it.
1: That is cool as crap, man. So so, so, where can people find you so, so they can follow you and get all the update on all this cool stuff that's coming down the pike and all the cool stuff they can get their hands on now?
0: Yeah, so the central hub for all these projects is abacabstudios.com. And there you can find easy links to the Children's Vampire Hunting Brigade, and uh, Tinseltown, and Dr. Zamba's Go Show, and my band, Dame Fortune, all that stuff under one roof, like just a click away.
1: That is super easy. So, are you there? I'm here. Oh, okay, good. I'll edit that 30 seconds of awkward silence out.
0: Okay. Uh, it's like you
1: finished it, and then it just like dropped off, and I was like, oh, crap, my computer did something stupid on me again. Right, right. Awesome. All right. So like I tell all my guests, um, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on and be with me tonight and talk, especially with all the cool places we went with it. Um, I love my episodes that go off on completely different avenues than I originally thought. And um, like I tell everybody who's willing to come on, uh, the, the, the show is open door to you. You are welcome back anytime you want to come on.
0: Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. All right, thank you so much for coming on tonight, dude. All right, take care. Take care.